Welcome back to Steam Powered Scoundrels, a Malifaux podcast. Fluff Feature, Chronicles Volume Number 3. You're your own problems. Oh. Oof. Ain't that a fucking mood? Much like humans and Malifaux? Are the problem? They're, they are the cause of their own problems. Hmm. Not necessarily each individual one is the cause of their individual problems, but all of them together are, are the problem. Collective self-problem. Yeah. Other than, you know, the tyrants. It's a good band name. Yeah, collective self-problem. <laughs> trying to think of what genre that would be. Like a punk, somewhere between like emo and punk. Like yeah. it's just a very honest name for country music. Ooh. <laughs> and welcome oh, back to Steam Powered Scoundrels, a Malifaux <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we are the collective self problem. <laughs> yeah, that's a good title. I think we found it. If only we titled these. Yeah, exactly. You know, maybe we'll change the format again. <laughs> Third, third episode, they'll all have different different titling structures. Yeah, entirely. We changed the numbering last time. This time we'll change the titling structure. Next time we'll we'll change, I don't know, the entire reason for the setup. Mm-hmm. I'm sure by the time we get to, like, Chronicles 20, we'll, they'll all be... We'll have figured it out. <laughs> no, I, th- I think we just did. Every the, the, the format is every time we do one of these, we change it. Mm, that's, the, that's the secret sauce. Yeah, and, and it'll be a game. If you, as a listener, can find each of the changes every episode, you get a prize. You get one Steam token. <laughs> <laughs> Redeemable at undisclosed. Probably the Discord, where I will, I don't know, say some shit. Yeah. A For, Steam token's going to be like uh, house points, where it's like, we're just really going to choose which group we like the best anyway and give them that, like... Yeah, yeah, it's gonna be it's it's extremely arbitrary. I'm a I'm a fickle judge. Yeah, it'll be the the steam powered scoundrels gilder program. Uh, you can turn in an undisclosed number of them to Nate for a, a different title in your in the Discord. <laughs> Except for Kyle, he will remain cowards. <laughs> round and round, round it goes. What you'll get, nobody knows. <laughs> I don't know. I, I bet your cowards plus. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I imagine he could he could change in a number of them to the the bank of Nate to become King Coward. Mm. Just continuously elaborate on the title of Coward, Modern Major General Coward. Mm. I like it. See, there there is one way he could get enough points to get out of the Coward category, and that's to make Swankers pigs. <laughs> well, enough talk about our personal lives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are here once again to talk about Weird Chronicles number three. Number three, the third one. Yeah, volume three. They're getting a little louder every time. Uh, so for those following along on the other the other podcast, the one, the one that's actually good with the stories and such. The breach side of the broadcasting. Yes. The stories covered in this one will be episodes eight through ten of Chronicles. I appreciate that you looked that up, because I definitely didn't. <laughs> yes. So yeah, any, uh, any initial thoughts just going through the actual chronicle itself um there's some interesting bits here kind of after all the stories they kind of change their layout kind of like we are changing it every time they put a new one out they've got a they've got a quick q a 
of course, the previews, because, you know, it is a thing to sell models. Some story encounters, which are kind of cute. Halloween stuff. Looks like this was an October edition. And some interesting stuff on conversion and basing. So, anyone looking for modeling tips, there's some neat stuff in here that I think still applies, despite using the older... Yeah, the the terrain stuff. That, yeah, the terrain stuff in here I really appreciated because it's similar to a project I want to do shortly here. Oh yeah. Oh, for the the tree, the they got like a bayou tree. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. No, 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 Titania's throne. Ooh, yeah, yeah. Well, I meant for the the part in the yeah. actual magazine was that the wire yeah. bayou tree that they made up. Yeah, they they. We'll we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. It looks really good. I like it. I do appreciate that on the model painting bit, like how very early on weird was like very supportive of mm-hmm. conversion of models because it Bishop, yeah, Bishop conversion is dope. Full head. Yeah. That's cool. Also, he's on a 50. Yeah. You know, make a nice little display piece. It's cute. Yeah. I did notice that this is the first volume after Malifaux actually came out as a game. Yes. They do mention that. And it sounds like they had a, uh, some production issues early on in that little introduction they get about having having product on hand. That uh that doesn't sound familiar at all. What? No way. How could this happen? Hey, at least they're consistent. Yep. These things happen. And they have learned over time. Life life happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say, and maybe this is just because it's a, a character that in the previous two we haven't seen, I feel like the art on the cover, which Anybody looking at it now would recognize as Bet Noir. I feel like it's a little bit smoother than the previous art we've seen. Agreed. Yeah, that's fair. Just within within Chronicles, and I really like it. It's very yeah. She's a chilling, she's a creepy lady with the stabby knives. Yeah, really. For me, it's the pinstripes. The pinstripes make it. You're only scared because you'd want to paint that. Always with the pinstripes. Yes, <laughs> you'd want to hurt yourself in that way. That is one of my failings. Yes. So we start with a, a master's note, which appears to be a internal back and forth between one of the, the weird creators and themselves, kind of going, where have you been? Why haven't we heard from you? And them answering themselves going, well, we, we kind of put out a game. It took a minute. I've been tired and doing a lot. Deal with it. Also, go play the game. And here's a few things that happened at Gen Con. This is uh, 2009 is when it came out for anybody who's trying to be a, a history buff and put this in in context. The old, the old days. Yeah, the, the late aughts, as it were. Technically the latest of aughts. Mm-hmm. It, it's an interesting rundown. I, I reckon if you're interested in kind of seeing what Weird has done just from the get-go and seeing how they've evolved over time with events that they do, I would go read this and just talk about, they talk Mm -hmm. about it here and in the Ask Weird section a little bit of just kind of what happened at Gen Con. There's another page for, like, here's pictures of of things that were done at Gen Con. It's really cool to see. I do really like the the picture of the inaugural Malifaux tournament, just because it's, we're, I guess it's just, you know, for the years we've been playing, we've always had, you know, play mats and, you know, a lot of terrain and stuff. So like this, this, this first tournament, they've just got a white table with terrain on it. <laughs> it's uh it's a little weird. Yep. Looks like they might have like lines on it or something being like yeah. this is the edge of your table, do not go over to other people's tables. I don't even know if that's line or if that's just like the tablecloths <laughs> that they've got on it. Could be. 
Also of, of interest, the first winners of the first inaugural Malifaux tournament, Zoraida took top, so she remains OP, and you know, <laughs> all that happens. And then we had a tie at third place between Lilith and Lady J, and second place was Victoria, so it's Control Master best, so I, I take it back, she's not OP, she's right where she should be. And then we have a bunch of beady ladies. <laughs> I feel like the game started out with a lot of beady ladies. Yeah. I mean, as you'd expect. All right. Yeah. So I guess let's uh, go ahead and delve into the, uh, the meat and potatoes here. Why we're really here. And take a look at our first story. Um, as a note, all of these are by Nicholas Volker. So there, there's your byline for our three tales. I will say, I didn't realize that this line that is the title of Chronicles started this early in the fluff. I thought it came in later in like the main rulebook. And even then, I, I don't know where in there, but I thought that was a later Seamus story where he brings up the line, Till Grand Kythera Dao, mm. which is the title of this story. I thought that was the first story in the rulebook. It's been a minute since I've listened to those. Because uh, that's the that's the one where he's fighting. Yeah, fighting Raspy. Raspy. Raspy in the, the in the graveyard, which this is kind of a prequel to. Yes. Yeah. I which is funny because it came out after the uh, the main storybook or the first rule book. Oh, you know Star Wars rules. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good because it gives everyone the same experience that I did when reading that story. Because <laughs> who the fuck is a Philip Toomers? Well, now we yeah. now we all get to find out. Really sounds like something you should check out at a doctor. Yeah, get get yourself checked out for Philip Tumors, everybody. Check out those Philip Tumors. <laughs> this is officially the check for lumps episode. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, no this this uh, story really just throws you in right away without really giving any background because the first eight paragraphs of this are speech, but it ends up being that this is Philip writing in his journal without any context until you get it, but he's talking about how to get to Kythera and what he and the professor and the rest of the excursion that went out there found and how the professor died when he said till Grand Kythera down Dow. Everyone except Philip died. <laughs> yeah. Well the the yeah. professor died at the site because yeah, it bit. kind of ate him. Delicious professor. Yeah. I wonder uh oh no, I'm thinking I'm thinking the other one. I was gonna say I wonder if this professor and Lilith are hanging out now. <laughs> but that's she's in the <laughs> other one. <laughs> she's in Nythera. Yeah, yeah. Well maybe maybe this is like the 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 food grinder and it spits out like bits of human effluence nachos into whoever's in Nythera, and that's how, how they ah, stay sweet. alive the whole time. Human smoothie. Delicious. Yeah. <laughs> so we're we're describing this, you know, as, as we get many times later. I wonder if Raspy's involved in this. As we get many times later, we get the description of this, like, spider-like structure in the swamp. These pillars are all twisted and sticking out of the out of the bayou. Very spooky. Really nice art to go with it, too. Yeah, very, yeah, that's very... That first look at that iconic Kythera. Yeah. It, it, if you had like skeletal hands where the fingers yeah. were also spider jutting legs. out of a swamp. I do really like the, the last line of the, the journal entry that speak the words till grand Kythera Dow and the jaws of hell will open. Mm-hmm. That's pretty fucking metal. Yep. Also, I know, 
I know this is in the southern bayou. I don't have the map in front of me. Where is this in relation to the like the lake that we've kind of expecting to see uh, the other on. half of the dragon show up in? They're not close. Okay. Uh, actually, Kythera's kind of smack dab in the middle of the bayou. Neat. And that dragon lake's more north, if I remember yeah, correctly? Yeah, she's far, far northeast. Gotcha. Also, this this kind of gives a decent sense of scale uh, as far as like how far the bayou is from uh, other things, because the second paragraph is basically, start from the breach, go east mm. uh, six days by walking. I'm like, okay, that is that is a good bit of, of a ways to the bayou yeah. from the breach. Yeah, I mean, walk, yeah. It's, it's a long way to walk, because we've kind of figured out at this point that Malifaux City is about the size of Chicago. So you're basically walking half the length of, yeah. length of Chicago and then a bit more to get to the bayou. So that kind of tracks. Yeah, and, and it's not like that's uh, it's paved streets or anything. Yeah, that's all wild ones, so I could see where that would be rather difficult. Yeah. The other thing I really like, as they're describing when the professor says Tilgrand Kytheridau is, they they talk about how this site lurches into motion, and like the, the foyer, as they call it, the center of these spider skeleton fingers moves and starts it, it feels very organic, despite them mentioning like this is old, rusted, corroded metal is what makes this whole place up. And it very much gives you that sense of, yeah, this is this is not metal in the way that humans would construct. Mm. It's very alien because, again, almost feels organic. And it, it it's a cool parallel, but also contrast of what we now know as like true Neverborn versus human construction yeah. and sensibilities. It was in a very, like, eldritch, waiting-to-be-woken kind of sense. Mm-hmm. Also, like, describing animate metal as being semi-organic has some has some interesting implications for the next story as well. At least some interesting parallels. So that might... It's just kind of a Malifaux theme that mm-hmm. things made of metal can still move as though they live. Just depends on the magic that's imbued with them. Yeah, and that fits also with the uh, abominations that come out of the Red Cage. Exactly. There's a a lot of that. It's definitely definitely a theme. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, so we we, after this first page, essentially Philip, it is revealed he's been the one writing all this down in his journal. Uh, He is the only one to have survived long after returning after the uh, the professor gets eaten by the Kythera ruins, everybody else who comes back with him died of, of like crazy fevers uh, shortly after returning. And he, presumably because he was the only one to survive after whatever else these guys have, have been quarantined in the uh, asylum. Yep. Went to the crazy house. The sanitarium. Yeah, yeah. The sanitarium, excuse me. In... In the custody of the guild, of course. Nothing bad could happen there. I mean, nothing ha- nothing bad happens because of the guild, technically. Because shortly thereafter, uh, a cat shows up in his, his isolation, his cell. And he assumes, starts talking to him. And tells him to stand away from the wall. Uh, and shortly thereafter, the wall frosts over. We kind of know where this is going. Ice Golem punches through the wall. Oh no, Raspy's here. Yep. 
Kool-Aid manning the wall down. I love that he's like, he's so ready to be crazy. Yep. Like he hears, he sees a cat, he hears a voice and it's like, obviously the cat is talking to I'm me. I'm a madman. <laughs> yep. This is what I've been waiting for. Yep. He's very aware of it. I love it. It. My time has come. I feel like that, and I need, I need to go back and re-listen to the, uh, re-read the first story with Seamus and Raspy fighting over the remains of him after this. Spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't read the, the first story or listened to the first episode of Breachside. But I feel like that line, though, well, that seals it, doesn't it? Talking cats, that's textbook crazy. I feel like that is the best line to describe yep. Philip's existence from here on out. Yep. Like, it's a turning point. That like, is his foundation. Even, even if it wasn't him actually going crazy, like it, it is, though. It really gives yeah. you that, that understanding of why he's okay, or why he, I won't say okay, why he just accepts everything that happens yep. to him in Molly's care. Just accepts being a head zombie. So yeah, Raspy busts open his wall, gives him gives him the old Terminator, come with me if you want to live. And they go to make an escape. But that is swiftly interrupted by a giant demon monster, as we now know to be a mature Nephilim, blasting into or tackling the ice golem. So we got big old big monster fight happening, which is pretty fun. And then Lilith shows up as well. Because, you know, this party this party wasn't bad enough for Philip. Yep. I really like, knowing what we know now, I think they do a good job here of, of playing on horror elements of fear of the unknown just by not describing things too much. They don't go into details on the mature Nephilim or Lilith herself. They just go, big demon monster. Also, the female version of big demon monster. Which to me says this is pre-Lilith, like, re-changing to human form? I don't think... Um, no, because she got locked in way before any of this happened. So, yeah. Okay. Right, no, that was that was first, first breach. breach. Yeah, it is interesting was. that the describer has having a greenish skin color, which is interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it, it is very much described as, yeah, just a you know fast hell-spawned monsters that are near unstoppable. So Lilith interrupts this rescue attempt and doesn't even doesn't even spare a moment. She's here to take care of business, and by the time Raspy even has a chance to comment or you know speak to Lilith, like Philip's already dead. <laughs> she is she she has snipped that head right off with her with her with her scythe. Yeah, <laughs> this is apparently scythe carrying Lilith sculpt. <laughs> um. I thought it mentioned, like, multiple times she stabbed him with her sword she had over her shoulder. Oh, I thought they mentioned the scythe. Yeah, it's just... Oh, they're slashing it like a scythe. Oh, that's where I got that. Okay, so, yeah, never mind. And that's and that's the chill wind. But, yeah, it, it, it's that same imagery. We've been talking about Lilith. I really like how they're describing, narratively, how Raspy's using these... It's not just, hey, it's snowy and windy. It's like, no, no, no. You are in the eye of this giant storm that appears to be centered over her. And she is straight up just, I need snow over there. This, like, gust of wind needs to be a blade. It's very evocative. Yeah. Like, after after the escape, the, the point of view kind of does, like, a soft shift to your, your kind of with Raspy's point of view for the, for the most of this. And that, that goes with the whole keeping Lilith and the, the Nephilim a little mysterious, so. Yeah, I agree there. And, yeah, it gives you a good insight into her magic and how it kind of feels. Yeah. I do. I really appreciate just this real quick inter- like interaction. Why did you kill this man to make you suffer? 
Yep. Just like I'm here to ruin your plans. That's yep. all. That is definitely my my favorite uh, line of dialogue that to make you suffer. Outside of that, with as much as I like the, especially for the wintry effects, I feel like there is some kind of the manner in which they are done this way. It, it is much more narrative paints a picture in my head than some of the newer stuff. But the trade-off is especially, and I don't know why I noticed this for Raspy the most, but her dialogue is pretty wooden. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, her, a little bit. her response to the, to make you suffer is the suffering will be yours. The, the best mental image I have for this is like the dub on an old Kung Fu movie, not lining uh-huh. up with the, that's, the mouth. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. I was going to say that that or like, <laughs> yeah, like a, like it. a bad dub of an, uh, not like a, not a bad dub, but like a, like less good dub of an anime. Mm-hmm. Which is like, yes, you've, you've captured the, the statement return of this dialogue you failed the delivery you have missed the humanity of it yeah <laughs> delivery could use some work mm-hmm. but either way it, it's always fun to kind of see this as a time capsule as we've talked about before yep and and how the how the shifts in writing have happened yep i like also that uh they make a big point of rasputina does not know lilith's name yeah. Until she just spouts it out, and that is the one moment where you're kind of in Lilith's point of view for a second, because she's upset that Raspy knows her name, because there's only one way she would, and that's if she was being coached and given information by December, which when she shows up, she's like, I didn't expect to find a woman, I expected to find a monster, which is a very interesting shift from, no, 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 you're, like, you're the giant demon monster trying to murder me. And the guy I just busted out of the crazy house. Yeah. How am I the monster? I do, I do like the descriptor of, I came to kill a monster. Big eyes, mouthful of knives, you know the type. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's weirdly casual, but I like it. It, it feels very, very Malifaux. Yes. A bit of a, bit of a kind of a quip moment. That also kind of, it, that gives Lilith a bit more of her, what we were seeing in, in the descriptions of her in like from Nightmares Now of she's the the canny, quick-witted one, that gives her much more of that feel than what I remember a lot in Tui, which is, she's just angry all the time. Like, yeah, yeah she's 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 more clever than Nekama. She's a more subtle instrument, but she's just, she's got anger issues. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, captures the, the canniness a I, little bit better. I mean, it makes a lot of sense at this point, because story-wise, mm-hmm. there hasn't really been any major crises yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, like, she's not just entirely sick of it yet <laughs> again yeah she feels as though she may have some agency in solving this human infestation problem little did she know <laughs> but yeah so they fight there's coldness and eventually lilith goes away because <laughs> some guild folks show up yep uh, specifically two of them and they have huge brass ones dragging the ground because they see this this frozen and demon fight happening and just start yelling, Rasputina, halt. No worry about the monster lady. Just halt. You're under arrest by the guild. And throw some dynamite at her. It's Hopkins. He has one job, and that is capture wizard. <laughs> That's fair. Demon lady? Not his job. That's why he brought Papa. That's Papa's job. Sammy's job is Raspy. That is fair. Not my department. <laughs> I'm a department. That's why I brought Papa Loco. He was the only one free. He was the only one available. 
which he uh, he regrets bringing. He says straight up, I'm not bringing you into the field again, because he just chucks dynamite in between the two ladies fighting. The ladies have a little, I don't want to deal with this, do you? No, I don't either. I'll see you later to continue this fight. And they just split. Yep. Before the, the uh, dynamite goes kablooey. Which then, like, collapses most of the san, like, at least a good part of the sanitarium. Yep. Like, I don't know what was under the sanitarium, but it was probably not structurally sound if one stick of dynamite does that much damage. I guess it was the, probably the, I mean, uh, ancient construction. Why did they, they build a sanitarium on top of some ancient construction? My headcanon is the sanitarium is totally constructed too close to atop the necropolis. Oh, fuck. Which is why it's the sanitarium. If you go there a little bit... Either, either that or it's... It might just be a repurposed, like, old building from Malifaux. Yeah. That's actually probably more likely. Yeah. Either way, headcanon is, you go there, maybe you just need some some therapy or a nap to not deal with the existential crisis that Malifaux gives you, along with all the very real trying-to-eat-your-face-off crises. And then whatever stuff around the, the necropolis is, it just starts seeping into your head and makes you even nutso. Yeah. And of course... Papa Loco is able to positively ID uh, Philip, seeing as you know they've they've been together at the at the sanitarium. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it, it's Phil. I know I'm from group. <laughs> I, just, I just love the statement. Oh, yep. it's Phil from the nuthouse. Oh, thanks, Papa. What'd you guys do brunch on Sundays? Something like that. They were in line for their meds together. But yeah, they they essentially all that's really remains of him that is easily identifiable is his head. They get that, and they pull his journal out of his coat. Yep, titled The Philosophy of Uncertainty. And then they carry him back to the asylum, and end scene. End scene. To be continued in the... Uh, the rest of the plot. <laughs> aforementioned story, yeah, of the main book. Also, I like that uh, both the ice golem and the mature Nephilim are taken out in two hits. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's accurate to the game. Yep. <laughs> and and not only that, like Lilith just cleaves through the ice golem's arm in yeah. one slice. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's a that is an armor ignoring sword. There, we take we're taking some uh, some cinematic liberties here. Yeah, <laughs> but this it works. Is, this is it's we're doing it for the drama. Well, hang on, it is it is first ed, so all the masters are you know they're they don't have a card; they have a little rule book themselves. Mm. It probably says somewhere on. Lilith's first edition card, just one IP kill kill ice golem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I think this actually I almost wish that they would take Breachside Broadcast and reorder the stories as they come out. Like I would put this one before story one because it sets up for it so nicely. Mm-hmm. I feel like that'd be a lot of effort, but that would be really cool to have a yeah, a chronolo- a chronological version mm-hmm. of of the series so you know someone out there on the internet with more free time than us go go do that and go and you'll get a couple of scoundrels points you'll get 10 scoundrel tokens yeah <laughs> all right any other thoughts on this one beyond <sighs> the fact that that art of philip's head at the end is really gruesome i don't know he's looking kind of cute <laughs> i know he's got carved into his forehead but you know he's looking pretty cute mm-hmm yeah, no, um, other than that, relatively, I don't want to say simple, but, you know, 
it, it plays into the kind of the expectations and we know where the story's, story's going from here. So this is, this is a nice little bit of foundational storytelling to add on to what we know about Philip and Lilith and Raspy and, you know, all the, all the major players of the, especially the first edition storyline. Yep. Also, I believe this is the first time. Yeah, no, because in the previous ones, they hadn't released them yet. This is the first time we've seen any Arcanist or Neverborn characters. Oh, yeah. Which makes sense of the new, the new hotness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the day. Back in uh, my day. <laughs> all right. Uh, on to story number two, Dear Kristen. Dear Kristen. Uh, which is, as we said, also by Nicholas Volker. This is entirely a letter from... A, an investigator that was brought in on a murder by the guild back to his presumably wife and daughter. Well, the investigator was investigating the murder of guild officers. Yeah. Whether or not they did anything wrong, well, we'll, uh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that, yeah. But he he's essentially sending her back this letter of, Hi, I made it safe. Here's what's been going on. And by the way, I need to vent because of the weird things and, like, This place sucks. Whatnot I've seen. Also, here's nine hundred dollars to to help you through with our kid. I looked this up in nineteen oh eight. Nine hundred dollars is the equivalent of like twenty eight thousand dollars today. Oh, homeboy's making some money. Yeah, yeah. Also, I think it's interesting that they're using dollars in the story instead of script. Yes, that was the other thing I, I wanted to, to mention. Like, we have not yet switched to script in the story. Yeah, yeah. And I think that just ended up being kind of a retcon later on of as they, they got the timeline Earthside down more of when the guild really took over. But I either way, it works. It, you could you could story it to say, you know, if he maybe was able to convert, you know, get conversion and send over U.S. dollars, essentially. Yeah. But yeah, it, it definitely reads like it's just, ah, script hasn't been invented yet. <laughs> yeah. And I either way, it, it gives, I think, a more solid understanding of like, how much money this is because even by today's money it's like hi i have nine hundred dollars to just send to you through the breach via post i'm gonna send it in the mail and also have presumably enough to keep myself living fed and clothed and housed although i I do i do like how it says i hope you receive the nine (laughs) hundred dollars yes i have just sent you almost 30 grand i hope this this comes to you in the mail i hope it's still in there (laughs) Also, I have a minor problem with story. The title is Dear Kristen, but the, the starting line is Dearest Kristen. Come on. Ooh. Come on, Nick. <laughs> Continuity errors already. Get your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, though. That's, that's my only problem. Yeah. I would say the story starts off really nicely painting a street-level view of a newcomer to Malifaux, of... Without getting into super details, things like the comforts are sparse, though I haven't had much to complain about. I'm employed by the guild, so we're in much more habitable lodging. There's a baker down the street. They make good cinnamon bread. But as I'm looking out beyond the neighborhoods I'm in, it's like, oh, there are definitely the haves and the Mm have-nots within this otherworldly Australia that we're in. Yeah, those first few paragraphs really do a lot just for simple world building. It's it's a nice nice flavor. Mm-hmm. It's definitely something that 
if you are running through the breach and you want a quick, effective way to paint the picture of where you are and you're struggling to do that for within Malifaux City without getting bogged down in the details, read over this and, and kind of adapt it to whatever area you're looking for. I think that would work really well. Maybe it's just because this one's like right after a story with Lilith and a, uh, a Nephilim, but there's a line in here about like, this truly is the frontier, no matter what, that the, the gargoyles hanging over the heart of the city might convince me of civilization. Like I instantly thought, like, oh, so that's where the uh, that's where the Neverborn spies are, just sitting up on rooftops. <laughs> I mean, that would I mean, wouldn't you literally not be surprising, honestly? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Would, yeah, Disney's gargoyles, as presented in Malifaux. <laughs> <sighs> some some mimic up there. Just I'm going to look like rock today. Going to watch everything that goes on. I am a statue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after after he does his little talk about how his life is. He moves on to describe this this first case. I don't know if it's the first case, but uh, this contract he has with the guild to investigate a murder of some of their employees. He arrives at this crime scene. Uh, it's been two days since the crime happened, and the bodies are rotting and gross and infested with bugs. Uh, and there's strange scrapes on the ground. But he finds there are some documents which list a mining contract uh, for a local union. And it appears there was this could potentially, if it's not what he first suspected, which is like a beast attack, this is more likely to be the result of a bad labor dispute. And again, with the when he describes beast attack, I think just because we just saw Mature Nephilim in the, the last story, I was definitely like, Big claw marks. Sounds like a, a Nephilim yeah. broke into this room. Big big monsters. Except that there's no sign of forced entry, as you mentioned. Also, before we get too far ahead of it, the thing that this makes me wonder is, why is the guild contracting out murder investigations to someone not already on their payroll that they had to like contract him out for this specific thing, who is also not on their side of the breach already? Uh, they're probably shorthanded. <laughs> That, and that was the best thing I could come up with too. Either way, it's it's a cool, it's a cool way to get him over. So you're getting kind of this outsider's perspective. But it was definitely something I'm like, ooh, there's got to be a reason for that. I wonder if there's some kind of bureaucratic oversight that says you can't have. Maybe all the investigators who could be involved were too close to it, and you couldn't let them do that because even even the guild would admit, no, that looks corrupt. Or maybe Lucius is like. You can't do this bullshit because it would be too easy for you to find the answer. And I want to sow more seeds of discord. The way I, the way I read it is that he's been here for not a long time, but a minute and he's working, mm-hmm. working contract jobs. And they, he, I don't think he was brought over specifically for this job. I think he's already been in Malifaux for a minute and then got this job is the way I read it, personally. Okay. Yeah. I, I didn't get that. I got the, as you know, the guild contracted my services to investigate the murder of four of their officers. Between the wire message and the ride by rail, it was a full 48 hours after the crime that I arrived. Yeah. Well, that's the ride by rail within the city or within the area, I think. Because he's riding rail no, from it- the city to the, the mine. And that's later. You're right. Hold on. Interesting. Because he's, he's just left his... He's talking about how like his wife couldn't come with him for this trip. Mm-hmm. I got hmm. the impression that this is like an immediate thing. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. Also, if I can throw in my headcanon, it, it feels to me like Guild is still 
establishing some control over Malifaux itself. Yeah, we're still fairly early in the in the days, so which, is, which might be why they're having to con. They're they they're a little bit short staffed. Yeah, they're having to contract out, and you get a little bit in the next story about the guild working on getting more control. Mm-hmm. And my my theory with the uh, the dollars to script is script is just a way the guild used basically like guild stores aren't accepting dollars now. We're getting script, and you have to get script from us. We only accept Disney bucks. Yeah. yeah. Controlling the economy. I can see that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. Especially since the dollars don't come from the guild, as we will find out later in the story. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Mm. That is a very good point. Yep. That, that makes a lot of sense in retrospect. You can exchange your dollars for Imperial credits. Yep. <laughs> Yikes. But yeah, no, he, with it being 48 hours, it is stanky in there. Which I think lend, lends itself to, we see him as a an excellent investigator based on the fact that the room hadn't been touched, but in that time, like, body degradation and whatnot, had to make that much more of a chore than normal to get the evidence out of, to, mm-hmm. to get him what he needed. It also adds a good, like, just flavor, just a, just a dash, a sprinkle of horror. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, it's a very visceral description, and it has that very natural, like, rotting body. Oh, God. Gross. I yep. like it. Yep. Yeah, the, the main thing we get out of there is there is one person who was supposed to be in that room, or who was not, and that is the reason that they were alive. And their name is Philip Knowles. And this itched my brain just a minute, and then I was like, Nick, Nick, why are you writing two stories one after the other where a person of interest is named Philip in both of them? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it was a very, very common name and. In- you know, the early, Could be. early 1900s. I'll get, like, an arm or a leg cut off, and then we'll just slowly build a Philip out of Philip. We build oh, we the ultimate Philip. It'll be Philip Philip? Yeah. Philip P. Philip? <laughs> Junior? If Philip Tumors oh, uh, owns a, a screwdriver, would that be a Philip's head screwdriver? Yes. How dare you. <laughs> the concern I have now is now I can envision, like, Seamus just like getting tired of Philip talking, turning him upside down, and making a screwdriver in his neck hole. Oh, yeah. ah, ah! We just brought the mouth and nose. I mean, he's gonna like cover the mouth and nose with his hands because he's wanting Philip to shut up in this case anyway. Well, this got weird. Anyway, Seamus is gross, and so am I in very different ways. <laughs> Fortunately, we don't have to worry about Seamus today. Yes. About time. So we find out about Philip. Nate, where does that take us? That take us takes us to Philip. Our investigator tracks down this uh, Philip Knowles and basically prods him for information regarding the labor dispute. Notably, this brings up a story about one Mr. Howard Langston, Woo. the foreman of the Delta 7 mining site, which by reports was, you know, very, very. No, the, the the miners there were worked really hard, and this was essentially what was happening was a a labor labor discussion, labor contract discussion between Mister Nowles, Mister Langston, and these other guild associates regarding why the the work on the mine had slowed down. Howard had explained to these guild representatives that the mine was unsafe due to the level of mining that had happened. So they were going to try to put up some more 
supports essentially in the mines. They continue working, but for the time being, they'd have to slow down production. The guild, as they want to do, did not take this too kindly. And these gentlemen negotiating this contract decided to just uh, go ahead and jump Howard Langston for not cooperating. Yeah, they, they chose violence. They, they On this day, they chose violence, which was foolish of them, because uh, Howard Langston is apparently fucking shredded. Yeah. Mm. Well, and, and they do such a good job of just painting the picture of him of like, there were six of them, and it was still a bad idea, but they did it anyway. Six five and built like a brick shit house. So they they jump him, and he essentially wipes the floor with the most of them. What was it where they actually managed to get him on? They shot they, him. They shot him. Oh yeah, one of them just actually fucking shot him. It blew out his hip. Yep. Well, and on top of that, the thing that they do to start off the fight is hit him in the back with a railroad tie, which does nothing. <laughs> It right. breaks. And to my point, and I, I was wrong, there were five notes. Yeah, there were five dudes, not six coming on him. Still, five to one is some odds. Where one of them can can swing comfortably a railroad timber. Mm-hmm. Like, the way they're describing Howard, I expect him to be the, the guy acting like Mr. Graves over here, being like, yes, I will use this as a baseball bat on your face. Not one of these guys who, I don't know, five of us want him, maybe we can take him? No, if one of them can swing a railroad tie, you should be able to... enough to break it. Right, right. (laughs) On a man's back. And it just kind of bounces off of him. I I definitely got that that, uh, cinematic image of, like, you hit the big bruiser with this, like, pipe, and you see the dust rise off of his shirt, and he just kind of looks over his shoulder like, did you really do that? That was a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, it's just a very, like, impersonal beating he gives most of them. Like, it's not fueled by rage or revenge. It's just, no, I will not let you smack me with a railroad tie. How, first of all, how dare you? Yeah, they, they do a really good job of, of describing his just, like, not, how do they even describe it? Not mechanical, but it was very much like I was, I was shown one, or I see how this situation's going. I have read the situation, and this is the correct response. Mm-hmm. Not... I took that personally. It's like, no, no. Oh, you, you decided the business of violence. All right. I will do business. Uh, so yeah, they, uh, yeah, they shoot him. So they shoot him here. That says Knowles described no malice in the man's counterattack, just fierce assurance that such transgressions would not be tolerated. Mm-hmm. Love that line. Like, I'm not, I'm not angry, but you messed up and I'm going to show you why. <laughs> I'm just disappointed. <laughs> Howard Langston is disappointed in you. Yep. You've disappointed Daddy Hank. <laughs> Which, yeah, they, they say essentially the superior officer of the, the guild in this conversation are the ones who shot him. They don't say what they shot him with, but they do say it was a large caliber weapon. And it brings Hank down. And now everybody is going over there and beating him with the butts of their guns and axe handles that they found at the site. Rude. Langston is, is purple and broken. He has become Kilowog. Yeah, but they're not done yet. Right. Then they drag him to a railroad t- track and leave him there. I want to say it's interesting Classic guild. Uh, that first guy that attacks Langston gets knocked unconscious. Second guy gets both of his arms broken. But in the description, it says all five men were beating up on him. Like, dang. Yeah. Well, you know, you got the guy with the broken leg. He's there, like, swinging, using his arms. You got the guy with broken arms. He's just kicking him in the shins. Or the ribs, probably. 
Oh, here's also a really good line here. In all the world, there is no place more in need of law than Malifaux. Law to keep men civil and decent and safe. But here, the guild is no law. Hmm. And yeah, that leads into these men dragging Langston's unconscious broken body and putting him across railroad tracks and leaving him to die. How delightful. I'm just wondering what you put on the report for how the, the union negotiations went. And I'm, I'm sure as guild officials, they would have no problem writing up this report and turning it in. But I just want to know what that looked like. Yeah. Negotiations went well, they agreed to everything, and since then, the negotiator has been unable to be found for further questioning. He then tripped and fell onto the train tracks. Yeah. So, it turns out that after all that, Langston is alive, and our investigator is surprised to hear this. Understandably so. Nice, fine. Not only is he alive, he has returned to work. After two weeks. That's normal, right? Entirely. Yeah. That's, that's normal for someone who's been beaten to a bloody pulp and then left on railroad tracks. Yeah. Perfectly acceptifiable. I imagine the, the train that went there was just going to pick him up on the cow catcher and take him right back to the mine, where they have state-of-the-art medical facilities. Yeah. Probably some healing mages. It's fine. So he takes his, his train to the, the investigator, not Howard in this case, uh, takes the train to the Delta 7 mining site where Howard worked, and he's described as on the walk from the train stop to the actual mine shaft, he's seeing these signs of it operating and, you know, beaten path where wagons are going carrying the, the soul stones, sees some movement around the site of, of people bringing things out of the Mine, and specifically, a plume of black smoke and a piece of mechanical equipment that is moving on these tracks, but also leaving the tracks uh, that the mine carts are working on. And it is, it was, he was confused by its manner. He was not familiar with a machine that moves so organically. And when he starts asking about it, the miners go, oh, that's Hank. Mm-hmm. And he's, he just kind of has this, is that what you call the constructs? Is this the, the you know, Hank-style chassis of the new I-don't-need-to-go-on-train-tracks-to-work-minecart uh, robot? What's happening? Also, I love that it literally says, in quotations, Oh, that's Hank. Yeah, <laughs> that's Hank. Eventually he leaves going, Apparently Langston's driving whatever this weird dune buggy is. And that's when we meet, for the first time in in this story, Dr. Ramos. An influential, if roguish, industrialist. <laughs> you know what I noticed here is, I, I don't think they mention anywhere in Ramos's involvement in this chronicle, his mechanical arm. Yeah, I don't think so. I think this is before that accident. Mm. Not that it comes into the story, it was just something that jumped out to me. So Ramos starts talking to him in a more learned fashion, picking up on some of the subtext, probably because it's Ramos. He knows what happened to some extent, and by to some extent, I mean he knows exactly what happened. To your point, uh, I remember there is actually art of a painted Ramos later at the near the end of the uh, chronicle, and yeah, first edition Ramos had all of his uh, all of his body parts, all of his fleshy bits. He's got fleshy bits. Hmm. 
still still got all the all all the all the human all the meat bits on him. Nice. Yeah, they they go for a walk, and uh, Ramos is distracting him with with conversation with about his business at the mining site. Da 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 da, and he lets him know I'm looking for Howard, and it's when you're about. He says 200 meters or so from it that he recognizes that this machine was Hank, or at least part of it was. Uh, and he goes into some really nice detail in this about how he's he's set up of, you know, he, he's more machine now than man, twisted and, well, not evil, but scary as hell. Yeah. Um, but Got robot legs. <laughs> yeah, and everything else. And Ramos nonchalantly calls out to him, calling him Hank, and he's still quite efficient and and it's given that kind of same manner of oh no i'm i'm not violent i'm not particularly prideful or anything i'm just i'm just doing a hard day's work and oh you you wanted a report for what we're doing today on the mine yeah here's how many carts we've moved here's any issues we've had he just kind of read reads it off like a good foreman yep and he does all this while the investigator is scared shitless because <laughs> Hank, already six foot whatever and built like a brick shithouse, I believe he says at some point, yeah, he doesn't say how tall he is, but perched on these spidery legs, he's much taller than the six foot six that Hank was reportedly standing before the accident. Uh And while he's he's giving this report and, and talking to him, Hank just kind of, in a way you would, while kind of half bored, he he does what we would do would be a kick a rock nearby, except he does it with a sharp spider pokey leg and leaves a, a furrow in the ground that is wow, matches the, the animal attack claw that the guy found in this room. Who'd have thunk it? It's wild. Yeah. And coincidence is Malifaux. Right? And they they again, without making a huge deal of it, make it very clear that Ramos is that kind of guy who just notices everything going on around him. He sees like a flicker of, of the investigator looking at this and doesn't say anything, but he pulls him away from Hank and, and basically gives him hush money. Yep. And, and talks about more of, of the events of the week. He, he gives him his side of the story. Essentially, yeah. but it was redundant. Yeah, because there's also but good on on this investigator for getting both sides of the story. Yeah, and there's there's the nice bit here near the end where Howard, like just off to the side, the investigator happens to see Hank call aside one of the miners and give him a hard hat, you know, gently remind this worker to remember his safety gear, and he's like, "Oh, this is a nice guy." Like, I mean, he looks is, like a giant is- spider monster. But Long he retains his where safety wasn't really a big focus. Yeah. Especially in Malifaux. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, that, it's a nice little human moment. So like it's it's nice to see someone caring about the workers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's they do a without saying it in in as directive words, it essentially boils down to it doesn't matter that I've been scared shitless by this giant half robot Spider-Man for the last ten minutes but I recognize that he had more humanity than probably anybody else I've talked to in this investigation because he offered a hard hat to one of his workers. <sighs> and I would argue that that, that 
factored more deeply into this guy's decisions than Ramos also going, you know, the, the guild perpetuates greater crimes that necessitate a violent reaction. Yeah. He, he goes off on his, his tirade. Yeah. He, he gets very leftist. Understandably. He literally, literally pulls a soapbox out. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's, there is the line where it, the guy makes it clear. It says, uh, Ramos, Ramos wouldn't let me leave without accepting his generous gift of $900. Like this guy was, this guy made up his mind. He wasn't here for the bribes. He's like, I, I know what I'm going to know. I'm going to say on the report. And Ramos is like, no, I'm going to give you this money because I want assurances because he doesn't personally understand that human aspect. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. I see you as an efficiency robot of if I put money in, I get silence out. Yep. But I, I really like from from the investigator's point of view, the he doesn't need to explain any further. Nothing he had to do had any sway over my sense of justice. And that had always been his creed. He knows Ramos isn't innocent at all, but he also has seen that the guild isn't, at least to the same effect. But Hank, there was a time when he was, mm-hmm. and Hank has suffered, and I refuse to be the instrument of further grief for either side of, of Ramos or the guild. Cause I can, by leaving Hank's name out of this, I can keep him from suffering more. Yeah. Which Eli and I were talking about this a minute ago. Essentially the, the this shows in ways that I think have been more straightly said, but not subtextually shown as much how manipulative Ramos is to his ends. How'd you put it? The fact that uh, Kaladi's not the only puppet master in Dead Man's Hand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fucking fair. Yep. But yeah, he, he's very much set up like, look, Hank, who I've turned into a, a very potential instrument of vast murder. Though he is, I wouldn't say a gentle giant, but he is a, a good man at heart, but now feels indebted to me. Yeah. I, have, I have strung him up as my own personal murder puppet. So yeah, Hank feels like the type of person who would who would feel that debt deeply. Well, yeah, and we've seen that in in I think it's Broken Promises or the the Hoffman story afterwards. Yeah, it's the Hoffman story afterwards, where essentially they they kind of look to Hank as one of these foremen who's got the vote of what do we do as far as dealing with uh Ram- No, it is Broken Promises. What do mm-hmm. we do as far as do we let Tony turn him in? And Hank's like, I'm not going to tell you not to, but I can't in good conscience vote one way or the other. I recuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a good boy. He's a good boy, Howard. Yeah. Hanks, so. I, I really like how this this gives Hank that backstory because we we'd always heard like, oh yeah, we we hear Hank mentioned. He's a really notable model and figure in Malifaux. Hadn't read his backstory anywhere because it's not in one of the uh, the rule books. It does one of those like. I guess I want to call it a trope, uh, but I really appreciate it where you have like the robot, uh, the, the, the thing that you want to view as emotionless. And you have the human who, uh, Ramos next to them. And like one of them's a robot, one of them's a person, but it's not the ones that you see visually being those things. Yep. Yep. And it's a good trope. I, I, it's when done well, it, yeah, it's delightful. Yep. And this, this, this story, this story by a mile is my, probably my favorite of these three. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. We end here with some really nice line art of probably a concept drawing of Hank. Yeah. And 
it's not far off from the the model we all know and love, but I would really like if if this specific art became a model. There's just something I mean, about I still it. Think it's it has fairly close to the first edition sculpt. Yeah, that would make sense. Of the Steamborg the Steamborg Executioner. Yeah. He he's got he's got this haunted look on his face. It's mm. it's again not I'm angry, it's not I I am some kind of monster unthinking murder machine. It is I'm here, this is my lot in life, and this is what I can do about it. But yeah, we we get the end of the story of because of all these decisions and, and horrible people involved and this one not horrible person getting the brunt of the problem out of it, he knows his he's going to report that this was a unexpected attack of a wild animal, and that's an act of God. And we get his name of James McCoy, which leads me to believe that this was written while or shortly after Nick was watching an episode of Star Trek. That seems likely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good good story. I definitely agree. Probably my favorite of these three. Yep. I'm also just a big fan in general of very stylized stories like this, where it's the the, the perspective story, kind of the almost a detective story, just a good mm-hmm. first person tale. I, I I'm I'm a fan of that from Alpha from Alpha stuff. Yeah, they do they do it well. Doesn't have to be all the time, but mm-hmm. it fills the world out nicely. Yeah, this and the other one that always jumps to mind on this kind of not a notable model character, but dealing with really interesting stuff. The other one that comes to mind on that is the library, which is, is really good. And that's, that should be from a Chronicles, I think, or is that from the 10 thunders? That's, book no, that's, that's years? from, that's from, I think storm of shadows. Okay. That was in one of the core books. We, we might have to talk about that one. Cause I, that is one of my favorite, like top five stories ever. It's just really good. Not even as a Malifaux story, just it's really good. Huh. But we'll come we'll burn that bridge when we come to it. On to number three, the Hollow Marsh Gala. By Nicholas Volker. Sounds classy. Yeah. Anybody who's read some some previous fluff knows that Hollow Marsh is where Ramos made his uh his I won't say infamy, but that's where he made his mark that got him turned into the Union president because he made this pumping station that led to a bunch of miners not dying whenever it rained. Yeah, of dr- of drowning, <laughs> you know. Yeah. A good thing to not want to die of. Yeah. And uh, we, we once again start here essentially with some form of media talking to the, the characters in the story, as well as the readers. In this case, it is an Aethervox radio show coming to you live from the gala at the Hollow Marsh Pumping Station, which is essentially going to be the, the unveiling of that pumping station as it starts to, to work. Uh, and they expect to talk to several speakers tonight, including the Governor General and other people as well, including Dr. Victor Ramos. It's almost like we've heard of him before. He gives a little background of a few other things he's he's done, including the Mechanical Canary, which has seen the casualty rate at a different mining site fall 70%. What in the hell was the casualty rate to begin with? That. That's a that's a big freaking percentage. Yeah. Oof. Turns out breathing gas is bad. I mean, turns out mining was the dangerous pr- pr- yeah, profession Earthside, let alone whatever it's like on Malifaux. Yep, gotta get them magic battery rocks. I mean, they they pro- guild. The way the guild probably viewed it was, if people die in there, good. That's charging the soul stones for us. Yeah, probably. <laughs> this isn't 
this isn't an unfortunate byproduct of the process. This is part of the process. Oof. So they're considering the miners' lives the way that Apple considers like their poor decision, quote unquote, poor decision making process and taking away headphone jacks and selling you the thing <laughs> that adds a headphone jack. Oof. Hot takes. Hot takes here today on Steam Powered Scoundrels. Yep, yep. Um also they, they mentioned there is an an automata orchestra. Yeah. I, I want this as a model. <laughs> Yeah, like, no, that's just, that's just robot band. <laughs> yep, that sounds actually really dope. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So we're hearing this this radio broadcast, which starts to fade slightly uh, due to the weather. Apparently, pretty bad for Aethervox signals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the radio starts buzzing, and we're kind of the scene kind of fades into this uh, a boutique, Mademoiselle Coco's boutique. Uh, there's two uh, women presumably employees of the boutique who are hiding in a stock room from behind a barred door, uh, scared of something stomping towards them and shaking the door, booming footsteps. And then the, the, the door bursts open and then there's some, some gunfire and it's a, it's a, a young, a young lady with a, with a rather large revolver and a metal arm. And a metal arm. Uh, we get we get Rusty Alice, who apparently is not a fan of radio static. <laughs> yeah, literally yeah. scared scared the living daylights out of these poor ladies because the radio was making funny noises. I want to know what the ladies were scared of to like hide in the back room of the boutique. I actually, hang on, I, I got this. I've worked retail, and retail in Malifaux's got to be worse. So never mind, I get oh, it. Fuck. <laughs> It it is kind of a weird setup in general, uh, setup for the scene, but it it, it works kind of for that the, the comedy of, oh, it's you know, it's just Rusty Alice, yep, um, and she is apparently there picking out an outfit because she and Leviticus are going to the gala. Oh boy, <laughs> yep. So she is picking out. She's picking out a pair of shoes and a bag. And then they find a dress, which yep. Levy ogles her in, and you're kind of yep. softly in his point of view for it, and it's gross. Yeah. Very not great. Yeah. Especially at this point. Like, I think we did the math recently, and, like, at current time in, in like, third edition, she's at least young adult, I believe. Like, she's she's hit that you are 18 line, I mm-hmm. think. It's still, you know, a, a what's the what's the term? May December relationship or something? It, yeah. it's there's a big gap there, and that's not going to stop Unpleasant. being creepy. Yeah, and you got to figure in. Okay, it's it's 1900. The the legalese of that is murky at best, I think, but it's still just grody. <laughs> Doesn't make Leviticus any better of a person. Yeah, no, and it's worse from this story, because at this point in time, she's like, what, 13, probably? Probably 14, 16, if we're being generous. Yeah, I don't want to be generous with Leviticus. They they get into this bit about, oh, there's a train that'll get you there for this party that's already going, but your benefactor has a coach that will drive you there, and the coachman clearly knows that he's he's transporting killers for hire, and knows not to ask questions, and is very glad that 
Alice doesn't offer him his or her metal hand whenever he offers to give her a, a leg up into the coach. Gotta say, the art for that train is pretty cool. Yeah, with the the giant like ram skull on the front. Yep. Like ten out of ten would use that as terrain. Had I a ram skull train? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Hell yeah. And then we, we are we proceed going to, get... to look up three D printed ram skulls. <laughs> We proceed to get uh, a bit of narrative about the rest of the, the the coach ride, where Alice is being an being an annoying teenager because that's what she is at this point. She's playing yep. with her gun, which is annoying. Leviticus, good. Yep, I like that. It, it they, talks about the contents of the bag she picked out, which is just her gun and a a bunch of ammo, gun and bullets, a mess of round she'd poured into yep. it. Yep, yep, just. You get a little banter between the two of them. And he specifies, like, do not shoot the target in the head. Very important. Yeah. Also remember your manners. <laughs> like not <laughs> shooting people in the head. Ah, uh, that just... Very yeah. Nice. Yeah. No, at, at the point where he's where she points out, oh, yes, you gave me basically the... A the young woman's young reader. Lady primer. Yeah. It's Ugh. like, yes, how to be a proper young lady. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. I don't like it. Uh, enough bitching about that, though. Yeah. They they do a, a nice uh, description of the Hollow Marsh pumping station as they get their giant, six giant steam engines, towering smokestacks. Ramos is being extra because it's his monument to his own engineering. Mm-hmm. Somehow it's not eight smokestacks that turn into spider legs. I'm not quite sure how he stopped that. <laughs> Give um, it time. But each- He's got time to build more. <laughs> but each of these uh, stacks are uh, adorned by six statuesque saints perched atop curling clouds, each attributed with a different virtue and each watching over the facility from above. Hello, yes, the Union, I am your god. Yeah. This is my cathedral, come worship me. Mm-hmm. Interesting theory, though. There's six statued saints, each attributed to a different virtue. What's what's the missing virtue? Because there's seven le- heavenly virtues to mirror the seven deadly sins. I promise you it's humility. <laughs> <laughs> I promise is. you that. There it is. Ah, good call. Good call on that one. Uh, so yeah, they they offload from the from the train, uh, hand in their invitations to the doorman. And they're introduced as you are at any proper gala. I want to point out that there's a little bit of artwork there of Rusty Alice. That in her hands is not a revolver. Nope. <laughs> it's a very nope. cool double barrel gun with skulls on the ends and everything. Skulls at the ends of the barrels. Yeah. not a revolver. Yep. yep. I, I, I wasn't going to point is. that out, but yeah, that is not a revolver. <laughs> that is more of a like double barrel riot shotgun. Yeah. She herself is looking very punk. Yep, and yeah, she she definitely bears the look of like a punk teenager. Yeah, I'm assuming that's not the dress that she's wearing to the uh, the gala. Probably not. If yeah, I had to guess, much more again like punk rocker schoolgirl look is is mm-hmm. I think what we're going for here. Yep. Oh, she's got like the flannel skirt. <laughs> yep, a plaid. The the robot arm sleeve has been just torn off and left ragged at the shoulder. Blades everywhere. The better to show off her rusty arm, like that does its own thing. 
Also, at, at some point earlier on when they're first describing the arm and they mention it being all rusty and whatnot, I love the the turn of phrase they use on it of it. It gave an eerie squeaking that somehow suggested its desire for something more sanguine than oil. I love the, the double meaning of sanguine there of better than and also more bloody than. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, we offload, they offload off the coach, uh, hand in their invitations to the party, and they're introduced as Professor Trellway of the New Amsterdam Academy of Metallurgists and his daughter, Linda Trellway, to which we get more disgusting banter. Yep, because this needed to get creepier. <laughs> daughter, is it, from Alice? Uh, yeah, and, and his response... And then Leviticus, remember your reader, Linda. Uh, yeah. Yep. His not it. amused. Just stick to the rule book, kid. Like Feels I told you, be a good girl. Why did you have to say it like that? Because ah. Levy's gross. <laughs> Here I was, Everything's... pulling in the disgusting Daddy Levy joke, and you had to pull that out. Yep. Nope, I let it out. Oh, yep. <laughs> oh. oh. They go up into the, the party, you get a brief, oh, there's, imagine a Hollywood party out on some big terrace with waiters and, and hors d'oeuvre trays, and that's exactly what it looks like. At which point I'm going, yeah, once again we're cutting out humility because Ramos is totally the guy who would design into his station the gala area. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh. uh, Yes. Hollow point pumping station and ballroom. Yes. Um, and as <laughs> Thanks, the, the, Ramos. Yeah. And as the camera is kind of pulling back on, on showing all this, they mention, oh, there's an assassin on top of St. Genevieve's head. Nobody can see him, but he's there. And <laughs> no, they, that's they, a funny way to put it. I love it. Yeah. They, they mention several high-priority people, but don't mention which one he's looking for. The governor general, guild deputy... Vice President of the Labor Union named Duncan McSweeney. And he starts pulling out his tools, and I'm sitting here going, okay, we might have like a sharpshooter. No, no, no. This guy has four iron tubes, which are made into four different, not rudimentary, but but different than we would think of them rocket launchers. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, my dude. Mm-hmm. Oh, it does say he, then, he ends up focusing on Ramos as he's yeah. pulling up the tube. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it com- comes at the end, so they give you that moment of, oh, who's he going for? Ah, he's he's aimed at, aimed at Ramos. So, Ramos, Ramos is delivering a speech, you know, minus the humility part. Yeah. Fiery and moving rhetoric. Fiery and moving rhetoric. And apparently, uh, this weird theme of Alice being into extremely older men because mm-hmm. yeah. she's apparently enamored with, with Ramos, not because of his words, but just his fiery old man passion, I guess. Yep. The, the, the line is actually such passion is an admirable and attractive quality. Alice, <sighs> you're, you're 13. Stop it. <laughs> Where are your parents, young lady? Levy probably killed them. Ah, uh, fair. Probably waves. Oh, yeah, Ramos is all proud of his his uh, his device, which has triumphed over one of Malifaux's demons. And talking about flooded shafts, and you know, 
all all the sorts of thing that Ramos is known to known to speak for. Um, and then the band, the the automatic automatic band starts back up, and we get to the 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 dancing. Back to the dancing. At which point, Alice uh, becomes extra bold, leaves Levy's side, who she has been mentioned as like basically hanging off of his hip so far, runs after Ramos as he's leaving the the podium and like grabs his his coat. And asks him for a dance in the uh, boldest but still proper, according to the reader that has been referenced, manner possible. And Ramos essentially says, thinks to himself, as long as the cogs of propriety had begun to spin, he automatically answers, sure, I'll, I'll dance if you would grant me the privilege. Also, uh, the, the description of the reader like how it's got like little cartoons in it to teach you just shows how child-based this thing is is thus pointing uh, out how young she is like it's yeah. uh, how to groom your ward 101 uh, yeah. uh, it's uh sadly not too far off for the time period but uh yeah history folks hate everything about it yep the the one good thing about this dance is it pisses off Levy. Which is gross in its own right, but yeah. I like the bit about Alice's robot hand like trying to like inadvertently strangle Ramos when he's when she's yeah. not paying attention. It's like creeping mm-hmm. up. I'm gonna get ya. And then Ramos is like, nope, <laughs> down, down robot yep. hand. Yep. Back on the when, hip. And and this was the part when I was reading through this where I'm like, wait a second, they're not mentioning Ramos's robot hand. Because if they were, it would totally be right now as like a, a comparison of Battle of the Robot Hands. Exactly, and it would be like yes, her her squeaking, blood encrusted, uh, uncared for arm, much in contrast with his like pristine, most efficient yeah, thing ever made, lightning polished, hand. yeah, lightning arm. So yeah, fucking Levy gets jealous, gross. And then Alice, because she knows he's getting jealous, robot hands Ramos's lapel, and at this point the hand will not be uh will not be denied, and she pulls him in for a kiss, and I'm just like, what uh, the hell? Ah. Uh, uh, uh. Then Levy goes to start like actually, I guess start casting magic. And he starts he starts getting mad, and that's when the assassin decides to strike, because, you know, a nice moment of chaos. Whether or not this was planned by Allison Levy or whether it just kind of happened naturally, it's still awful and I hate it, but here yeah. we are finally yeah. getting to our assassin attack. Uh, Alice wheels around, now realizing that the assassin has fired off their rockets, and she shoots the rockets with her revolver, which conveniently blows up these rockets that are full of poisoned needles. Yeah! That Start hitting basically everyone that isn't Ramos, Levy, or Alice. Yep. <laughs> you know, c- collateral damage. Whatever, it's fine. And meanwhile, while the amidst the screams and fright and shock of the crowd, Alice is just maddeningly toothy grinning. Ah, I've been waiting for you! Just, like, sh- uh, throwing around her, her revolver, like, ah, yes, that's tracking back the, the smoke of this rocket or whatever, and just starts shooting all of her bullets. <laughs> yeah. 
and then these 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 poisoned needles that fall and hit people apparently cause wounds that bubble up with sickly green pus. Mm. But of course, the governor general, since this was clearly his plan, has antidoted all of his people, so it's only affecting union people. Is- yeah, and they they do a little aside here of basically it's going to look like the yeah the people who were staying with the governor will say oh the governor has the best medicine and we were all fine despite whoever was trying to take this out and probably these high ranking loyal union officials will be dead yeah this this aside was felt a little clunky yeah just because they kind of had to slip it into the narrative and I don't know where else you would put it in the story without like Mm -hmm. doing an exposition dump but yeah just I I felt that this one little passage was a little clunky it kind of like a bump in the road of the of the narrative yeah I I think if you the the reason for it is it's a short story if it was a little bit longer you could have I I think you could bookmark the the story with another like follow-up newscast of you know so and so said blah 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 about the the governor general's great medical care at his facility for his guests and have that be like Ramos or somebody listening to it and when they click it off then they go ah yes that was the plan take out our union officials and install their own people which is what we find out is the plan and specifically the number 2 man that was mentioned uh the the vice president is a guild man and we find this out because eventually, after they kill the assassin and behead him, yep. Ramos... After after Levy reminds Alice not to shoot him in the head. Yeah, yeah. And we, we find out after they take him out that Ramos is the one that hired them because he saw this attack coming. And specifically Levy, because the whole time I'm, I'm reading this going, why is Levy here? Alice is the one doing all the work. No, no, no. Levy's doing the, the after of getting the information. Levy's here to be a necromancer. <laughs> yeah, but Levy's hooking up the dude's head to essentially a, a bellows and a make-the-brain-work-again machine so that the bellows can make his vocal cords work without lungs so that they can ask him questions after the fact. Uh, there's, there's a lovely bit we passed over where decapitate is a bit, uh, bit of a nicer description of what actually happens to the man. And you, you basically get the impression that Alice just lets her arm go wild on the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Alice goes a little crazy. Yeah. Like, but she doesn't this, shoot him in the head. This fight, is, this fight is gruesome when she actually catches up to this guy. Like, she is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> the assassin felt an unfamiliar fear grip him and felt as Alice began to press the attack. The gears of the mechanical arm groaned in the rusty orbit, squealing as she lashed out again and again. Her cruel talons raked his flesh and sought his throat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, also the, the fun bit about how they get to him since he's up on one of these saints. He tries to leave via jetpack, and she <laughs> shoots the jetpack. Hell yeah. After, like, just scooping up a handful of bullets and without, like, trying to put them into the revolver, just kind of smashing them at the inside. Jam them in there. Down, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's half, presumably it's a six shooter. Yeah. <laughs> I like uh Wait, back to the uh oh sorry. They've got a little like image thing there to show like a divide in the story as mm-hmm. they do. I like because they're following outcasts at this point, and outcasts aren't a real faction. There's no symbol there. Like if it had been guild, there'd be a ram, if it had been 
Neverborn, they'd have that mask to show who we're following. It's outcast. They're not real. They don't get a symbol. <laughs> it's a squiggly. Yeah. It's just a squiggly. Um, it's a Rorschach test. <laughs> Back to the bit with the head. You know what this reminds me of? And this might just be because it's on my brain due to recent Malifaux reveals of, of uh, Mecha Mechma with her robot spider. What? The head bit reminds me of Wild Wild West. Where yes. they've got the head of the guy with the yeah. they've got the lamp in it so they can see the, the last projector. thing he saw, which is uh, yeah, some bullshit, like obviously, but like this head with the bellows to make it talk is really, really reminds me a lot of that that, yeah. that particular scene. Yep. Why would a story involving Ramos remind you of Wild Wild West? I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine. But yeah, so they, they use this head to uh spill spill the beans on what happened. They get this they make the assassin talk, but you know, not by his choice. So the the assassin basically spills that the governor wanted to kill Ramos to gain control of the union because Ramos's second hand, uh Mr. McSweeney, is a guild man, not actually loyal to Ramos. So Ramos and Levy have a brief moment talking about another contract to take out McSweeney. Levy is also, though, apparently still still jealous and grumpy at Ramos, and so we end with Levy thinking to himself, he's going to inquire with the guild fixer if there's any available work, presumably against Ramos. Yeah. I, I also do like that the one Levy thing that I like in this is when Ramos says, do you want the contract on McSweeney? Levy's like, sure, I'll take it. I was just hoping for something more interesting than murder. Yeah. It's a little boring. Yeah. Did you have other people for that? We just did murder. There's not even a party yeah. attached to this one. Yeah. I've got murder at home. <laughs> <laughs> the murder at home pans to a hollow wave. Oh. So yeah, uh thoughts? Thoughts on uh hollow hollow marshgala? Levy's gross. Yes. Yes. Rust We've established Alice. here from day one that Levy is gross. Yep. Well, for anybody who who was maybe going off, say, the... I feel like the rulebook stories are less direct in their their grossness. Like, it's, it's there. Don't get me wrong. They still touch on it, but yeah. yeah. But yeah, it, it's not as direct from, like, Levy's point of view of, I am, I am appreciating and ogling my way too young girlfriend, essentially, in her gala gown and getting jealous as like a, a high school boyfriend when she's kissing another old dude. Yeah. Like, mm. that is way more direct than you get mm. of that issue yeah. in, in the storybook things. And I'm glad we've moved past that yeah. to the extent that we yep. have. <laughs> it cements Levy as this horrible human being. They, If that is what they set out to do, they have they have done that well. True. He is not a good man. I especially between this and the previous story, I think they set up really well the extent that that Ramos is playing that spider web game of chess. It's like, ah, through my contacts, I know that the guild is going to try some bullshit. I'm going to counter bullshit with their murder. Counter bullshit the bullshit. Yeah. Exactly. I, I cast counter bullshit spell. Oh, you hired Rocket Assassin? I'm gonna hire Necromancer and Gun Teenager. <laughs> gun Teenager. You activated my trap card. Gun Teenager explodes rockets before they hit. Uh, Ridiculous. Yeah, no, it, it's, it sets up their stories really well. I'm kind of surprised that 
we didn't get a Marcus story in here. Yeah. Uh, and mostly because since we're, or, or honestly, I'm even more surprised that we didn't get more Neverborn in here. We just got the, the brief Lilith mention. Uh, and I'm mm. surprised at this because specifically before the story start, there is a page showing the crew boxes that are available now along with like the the cover mm, of book one yeah. and we see raspy ramos and marcus we see sonia and lady J and perdita we see mcmorning nico and seamus is kind of tucked behind some people and we see pandora lilith and zoraida and the vix and somer no so, uh, no levy <laughs> <laughs> yeah but like the and and obviously you weren't going to get all of them in here, but I figure okay, you have your your grand Kythera of let's show off one of the Arcanists and one of the Neverborn. You have the other one that is specifically ironically no Rezzers. Yeah, uh, I mean they you, had you got Levy. He's Necro ish enough. I meant I meant for 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 uh, till Grand Kythera now no Rezzers in that story. Well, I mean Philip is technically a Rezzer, but yeah. not yet. That's fair. Because, yeah, this this further cements the... I always felt, reading through the first Ed books the first time, I always felt like Raspy got a lot of the spotlight, mm-hmm. and I got kind of tired of it the first time through. I've since come around, but it's... For me, it was Raspy and uh, Seamus. There was just way too much Seamus. Yeah. Well, the the first story kind of revolves around them and, and Pandora. Yeah. Oh, no, and, no, and, and Sonya. And Sonya. Well, Sonya ends up like hunting Seamus down as he's dealing with the Kythera thing. Does she? Yeah, I kn- I know at the beginning though it's him and Raspy. Yeah, are clashing. Yeah, that's the first story. I'm I'm talking the first arc overall. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, no, I'm I'm kind of surprised that we either didn't complete the Arcanist trifecta of released boxes in this one, or have here's your one from each, one focusing on Ramos and one focusing on say Pandora or Zoraida. Mm-hmm. But well, that's good stories. That's because at the very beginning of the fluff, and it carries on for a while, the, the Neverborn are kind of like not real characters. They're the spooky monster antagonists. Yeah. Um, and you can kind of see that in this story where you, like, yeah, ooh, Lilith shows up and she causes problems, but it's... you don't really get her perspective other than, like, you know why she, you, you find out why she's attacking as she wants to kill December. But, like, that that carries on for a while in the fluff, especially it, it gets better when they start dividing the fluff into factions. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the Neverborn are are side stories or antagonists, and most of the side stories are from the perspectives of non Neverborn people. Yeah, they're they're very while while it's a war game, so nobody's the good guy, quote unquote. They definitely are still from a human perspective, so mm-hmm. the the Neverborn are. Yeah, it, it yeah. favors a human perspective. Be it usually usually yep. Gilda Arcanist, yeah, yeah, on average. Gross. Yeah, those are, <laughs> those are the stories, and they they were good overall. I'm the the page yeah. after that is is a uh, one page ad for we want henchmen, <laughs> so you can you can have someone promote Malifaux in your area and go to here's the the sign up for henchmen website. So that was just cool. You see the the black Joker and and red Joker from that deck. The red one being the uh, Titania alt sculpt that we've seen. 
to Tanya. And now we know who she is. On that front, I'm hoping we hear something about the, the henchman program being relaunched mm-hmm. soon. I know that's probably been thrown off whatever yeah, their original plan was with COVID and everything, but hoping to hear something soon. Then we, we jump into this Ask Weird section. I'm, I'm going to just say, everybody, go download this chronicle from DriveThru and just read this couple pages here. Really read all of them. The stories are fun. But these these questions here, and just kind of consider what the answers to these are now as you read it, and which ones have come true or adjusted or whatnot as as we've come to where we are now currently in in time. Because a lot of them, it, it's just interesting to see the growth of yeah. the first one on here, for instance, is, is Weird Chronicles ever going to have a regular release schedule? <laughs> and they, they did, eventually. And they talk about the future plans. Are there other game ideas in the works? And just now we're starting to see in, in more of a big way. I know they've had like Darkness Crumb rattling and whatnot come up, but we're talking about Vagrant Song. Uh, we're seeing Bayou Bash. We're seeing things that aren't just Malifaux mm-hmm. doing well. And we're seeing the other side. Like this is a kind of an idea of how long some of these ideas can take to leave the, the idea pool or off of the design page. So that really just gets me more excited to see what weird has coming out soon. Trying to think if there's any other questions out here that really jumped on here. People are already, oh, we're we're looking, you're working on the next book. Any teasers? Yeah, it's it's the next book. There will be at least two more expansions. Uh, <laughs> we hope to have it in like the next eight to nine months. How are you getting around Codex Creep? Oh, this is a big one. And I, I think they, they did this well of, yeah, you can argue Power Creep from edition to edition or whatever, but they basically say... Because you're using a diceless system, you have a lot more unexplored ways to make a model powerful without giving it a bigger gun or teddy bear, which I I think is very true, and I I think they answered that really well. Definitely my favorite one in here, though, is who would win in a fight, Nathan or Eric? And the answer is Nathan is bigger and meaner, but Eric has more manipulative ways of making Nathan cry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Yep. Oh, no. Don't cry, Nathan. Yeah, no, good stuff. And then you get into the the sneak preview of other miniatures, which looks to be some. A lot of these are the uh, the totems because you have the cherub, you have uh, the zombie chihuahua, the vulture. You have what appears to be the copycat killer, and in this sculpt, he has his own hat in his hand as he is climbing out of a larger hat on the base. Yeah, which is adorable. And would be easier to have on a base than the stabby end of one pair of scissors. <laughs> pair of scissors, yeah. Got that nice. Uh, that looks uh, the skeeter that fits on a base. <laughs> no, that can't be a skeeter. It was. That's how it was. Nope, not allowed to fit on a base. And then you, those are all nicely painted. Next page is coming soon. Bet Noir, Ronin, and Young Nephilim. Uh, and these young, honestly, look almost like just tall tots yeah. compared to the, the big, the bigger wings that we're looking at now. These, these wings are smaller than the cherubs that were on the page before. And then, Oh, we the, got the hanged. Yeah. They look the same. More or less. Yeah. Well, notably there are three of them. The one definitely does. Yeah. Notably yeah. there are three of them. And the one that looks furthest away from mm-hmm. the other ones is definitely Daw. Yeah. 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 That was the original. Got the original Teddy here, that big just hunk of metal that if you're losing, you can hit your opponent with. Beat your opponent with. And then you you go into the uh, 
story encounters, and this is actually three of them, Malifaux for Halloween. Uh, I don't think we need to break these down because, again, go read them. You're not here to listen to us break down specific holiday scenarios for you. You can read. Uh, but this is this is fun. Essentially, go trick-or-treating at four different houses. And the thing I want to mention about this is if this was a, a, a scenario now, they would be much more precise at where the houses need to be on the board. Because all this says is literally set them up in kind of a, a circle as shown, there should be at least four inches between the houses. And it's literally four white boxes in a larger gray box. Squares, yeah. Now we'd have exact ranges. And, exactly. Uh-huh. Also, the, the, the scoring would be much different. This is literally, you get all four points at the end of the game for the player with the most candy. And you get two if you have at least two candy. Yeah. <laughs> but still, interesting. I, I think taking something like that and adapting it for a, a current, like if you're doing just a, a fun story uh, tourney would be really fun around Halloween. Uh, number two is you're picking pumpkins in the creepy pumpkin patch and you need to not drop them. And if people like push you, you drop them. And then the the last one is everybody needs to get inside of this 12 inch by 12 inch house that has at least two entry points on each side. While you're getting your people inside, you're trying to get the other people out. First off, I think that this is is something to mention. Uh, I know a lot of people are like, houses, why do I want to play with things you can go inside? And with the terrain rules in 3E, I've had a lot of fun going inside of houses. But the key here, and this isn't talked about enough, you need buildings with multiple entry and exit points. Yeah. And while the the rule book talks about you shouldn't make a house bigger than six inches, I really feel that that needs to be clarified of if you're not making it enterable, if you're just making it a box, yeah, don't make it too big. You just need it to block line of sight. If you're making it bigger, you don't want to call it one piece of terrain because you have things like Yedza now. You want to basically make each wall a piece of terrain and say together they are enclosed, but have like three or four ways into this building and put it into a a point where the pool points you towards and you'll have a lot of fun with buildings. It's it's very interesting and uh, we, yep. we get goofy with it. Any other points on that one? No. no I think that's about it. Yeah, that's I, think the, we've, I think we've thoroughly covered this bad boy. Yep, because then all we have is the uh, pictures from the first Gen Con talking about yeah, talking about your, your stuff. entries into the painting contest, and we're looking for writers, editors, artists, etc. Oh, and then then we get to the the how to convert bishop. If My you're bishop's in, on fire. Yep, yep. <laughs> how to make bishop ghostwriter? Sans mm-hmm. uh, motorcycle, and that's just motorcycle. Again. Bishop has a motorcycle. You just know it. Yep. Oh yeah, he would. Yep. I'm working on a conversion for that. Actually, it's just really hard to fit it on a 30 mil base. Just him and Barbara riding <laughs> around on their motorcycle. Oh, I would. Read that. <laughs> I would read that story. Um, my yeah. Again, go download this. There's some really good uh, painting descriptions here. If you're like me and just don't like watching videos of people doing conversiony things, and you'd rather read them, go pick this up. Because you do that, and then you jump after a couple pages to how to make a tree out of wires and putty. And that was actually really cool, given that a lot of the the trees I've seen are either very standard and functional, but don't have a ton of of character by themselves. This tree that they make Mm. looks like it's probably on like a foot across base that they make out of it. 
and it just looks like one of these gnarly old ancient trees in the bayou somewhere that it's a nice looking tree yeah you like it would be perfect to take a nap under and and camp under for the night but you should also be equally concerned that it's going to come to life and tear you to pieces yep <laughs> oh yeah and here's here's to finish us up we have the uh featured artwork of people who had sent it in and this is where you see ramos holding a, a bag and some magic with both human hands Yep, yep, still got still got flesh bits. And then, yeah, we end up with Happy Halloween and a piece of art on the back cover of Dead Justice. Delightful. F's in chat for Lady Justice. No F's for Nicodem, though. He doesn't deserve them. All right, yeah, I, I think that brings us to the close of it. Had a lot of fun, as usual. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Nice little chat. And we'll be so, back. Uh, we'll be back again eventually. Yeah, and I think the, the next one we did a little reading ahead and instead of like three small stories, I think it's one bigger story, isn't it? Uh, yep. The White Fist. Cool. Don't remember what that one's about. We'll uh, we'll take a look at that one next time. I'm, I'm just going to assume that Super Smash Bros. happened in Malifaux and, and Master Hand appeared. Oh, yep. Master Hand. Yep. yep. Big That'll sky hand punching people. But All right. we'll come back for that one. And uh, until then, read on. Read on. Read on. Songs used in this production are Villainous Treachery and Five Card Shuffle. All music is created by Kevin McLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.